You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Oh, good Queensland water. Good. No, I've been in, I've been in um, Babylon slash Victoria for too long. Uh, I've got a, I, I am, I am, um, I am by uh, upbringing a Queenslander, and it's difficult because in Victoria, state of origin is such a non-event. So when I, when I, when I'm at work bouncing on joy on a Thursday morning, and you know, I see a state of origin, Queensland won. It's like a football midweek. It's good to be, good to be amongst my people, <laughs> my people up here in Toowoomba. Uh, well, the topic I'm dealing with that is that of religious freedom. Now. Uh, <laughs> As you'll probably become abundantly clear, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I did apply to go to law school, uh, but I was rejected for medical grounds. Uh, they were unable to extract my conscience. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. Any, any lawyers? I'm joking. I'm joking. Lawyers are an important part of our society. Uh, no. Um, yeah, so I'm... I'm got into this topic of religious freedom looking at various things that are happening in our culture uh, in the last, my goodness, seven or eight years, uh, where this topic is really ramped up as of one that's, uh, that people have very strong feelings about, both for and against. And I've heard people say things like, you know, with all these mask mandates in churches, it's like we're living in North Korea. You know, it's horrible. And then I hear other people saying, you know, Scott Morrison is, is part of a secret plan hatched by Hillsong to take over the Australian government. You know, all sorts of weird stuff like that. We can't have Christians as prime minister. You know, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a weird, it's a weird time. Uh, initially, very quickly, part of the church's faith and witness in the Greco-Roman world, where they went from being a minority sect within Judaism to becoming a major religious force in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the church was largely persecuted. Uh, not always like top-down, but locally and spasmodically, different Christian groups could be persecuted in North Africa, in Italy, France, and around the, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. And that's why they were very quickly stern advocates for religious freedom. In fact, in the early 3rd century, one uh, church father, Tertullian, uh, who, was a, who was a Christian lawyer, uh, he, he wrote this on this religion of freedom. He said, We are worshippers of one God, whose existence and character nature teaches all men, at whose lightning and thunder you tremble, whose benefits minister to your happiness. You think that others too are gods whom we know to be devils. However, it is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every person should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is surely no part of religion to compel religion, to which free will and not force should lead us, the sacrificial victims being required of a willing mind. You will render no real service to your gods by compelling us to sacrifice. For they can have no desire of offerings from the unwilling, unless they are animated by a spirit of contention, which is a thing altogether undivine. Uh, Tertullian is writing at a time where people in the Roman Empire are saying uh, Christians are a threat to the social fabric. 
they, re, they refuse to worship the traditional gods. They're, they're effectively atheists, if you like. And by refusing to do that, but to participate in the festivals, to you know, offer a pinch of incense to the emperor, they are not only blasphemous, they are treasonous. And some considered their very existence to be illegal. So early on, the Christians were very big on this concept of religious freedom. Every, every person should follow their own conscience in the worship of God. Now, with the conversion of Constantine to Christianity in the 4th century, things and fortunes for Christians began to change quite markedly. Uh, it meant that the conversion of Constantine meant the, meant the end of the persecution of Christians. It also meant re uh, religious tolerance across the entire empire, not just for Christians, but for everyone. However, it did lead to the eventual Christianization of the empire, which meant that Christians were no longer merely tolerated, they became privileged and even hegemonic. And when they were hegemonic, uh, their... How can I put this? Their affection for toleration quickly began to dissipate. And other minority Christian sects could be persecuted. Uh, pagan groups could be persecuted. And the Jews were often violently persecuted. Now, I'm not convinced that the conversion of Constantine and the Christianization of the Roman Empire was a bad thing. I think it's simply the success of the Christian mission in the Roman world. But it did thereafter lead to a very complicated relationship between the Christian church and political powers, whether we're talking about the Byzantine East or we're talking about the Latin West. And in the Latin West, there could be a lot of conflicts between or different arrangements between the church and the state. Sometimes the church acted as just merely chaplains of the state, a department of the state. In other times, uh, bishops and popes attempted to carve out their own kind of state within a state. And then on other occasions, again, there was a lot of hostility between various kings, princes and rulers and the churches. Uh, that came to a head in the 11th century where the church, feeling that it was too indented, too cosy with the political powers of the day, began a process of reform, seeking to have a higher level of spirituality, of, of holiness, than would be found in the halls of power. And this is called a period of reformatio, where there was a deliberate introduction of some degree of insulation between popes and princes of the Middle Ages. But even then, there were still a lot of problems. Still, corruption abounded in certain wings of the church. And that's why we had, in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, where you get people like Martin Luther trying to use the Bible to critique the traditions, the trappings of the medieval church, saying our allegiance is not to the Pope, not to the council, not to the philosophers of the age. Our allegiance, our faith, should be in instead the God of the Bible. But that created a rupture in Western Christendom as it was now divided between Catholic states and Protestant states. And out of that rupture, if you like, even Anglicanism was born. And we had all sorts of tumults and, 
and uh, conflicts, uh, quite notoriously the Thirty Years' War. It became very quickly apparent that no one side, Protestant or Catholic, was going to dominate. So we, there needed to be some kind of arrangement because this hostility between different Christian groups could not keep going uh, perpetually. And they basically, out of that conflict, developed the earlier stages of secularism. That monarchs, governments would permit a degree of religious diversity in their population, whether Protestant or Catholic. They would be allowed to worship in their own way, in their own churches, without government interference, without government coercion, irrespective of where they were. And that is the groundwork for what became secularism. And it's not long after this sort of introduction of secularism into Europe that we have the Enlightenment. Martin Luther's scepticism towards church authority uh, gave license to the scepticism towards the very idea of religious authority itself. So we see a whole critique of the idea of revealed religion. And this is where you get the age of inquiry, the age of reason. And many people begin to either abandon the Christian faith or try to reinterpret the faith within this new mindset, this new era that is modernity. And this is where you get people who become Unitarians, uh, deists, agnostics, or atheists, if you like. And it is out of this, this very complex post-Reformation world that the American Republic was created. Uh, America, as, as a series of European colonies, was, was founded in part by different European powers, the Spanish, the French, and the English, all taking parts of the eastern United States. And it was definitely a place pregnant with religious energy. For the, for the Puritans who went there, they wanted to get away from what they saw as the corrupt establishment of the Church of England and establish like a new Jerusalem where they would have a, a purer, more simple religion, a, a better way of living out their Christian faith far away from the menacing gaze of European monarchs and tyrants which is why at the founding of the American Republic, amongst its first uh, amendments, there was a very strong advocacy for the separation of church and state. They did not want to be like the churches of Europe that would be officially Protestant or Catholic with mere toleration for dissenters. They wanted to see the two bodies completely separated from one another. This is why the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So Congress is not going to give hegemonical privilege status to one particular religion, whether that's Presbyterians, Baptists, or Episcopalians, nor shall they interfere with how people do religion. This is a further acceleration of the idea of secularism. There are some places where religion is not allowed to matter, and where religion does matter, it is meant to be immune from government interference. And as it turns out, this, this, this type of secularism was a great model for multicultural, for political pluralism. Because if you not just only tolerate Protestants and Catholics, you now have the same tools, uh, the same framework where you can tolerate Jews, 
Muslims, people of all faith and none. Thus, secularism was initially created as a way of creating space for people of all faiths and none. It was a means for enabling peace and participation and living with differences. And Australia was founded in a similar context. I would argue, and I will argue, that the Australian Constitution is largely a British appropriation of the American system. In our own context, we have a similar separation of church and state. We have a similar clause uh, claiming that the government will not interfere in people's religious activities. Nonetheless, there are some, compl uh, there are some complicating and concerning factors when it comes to secularism. Uh, if there is a wall, a, a wall of separation between church and state, can you have a gate that rides between them? You know, for example, we have chaplains in the Australian military that are funded. We have a certain degree of uh, government funding even in faith-based schools. We have chaplains in hospitals. Uh, I believe it's still so at the moment that the Australian Parliament begins by reciting the Lord's Prayer. So secularism uh, can be a little bit fuzzy around the edges. And in our more recent context, I think there are a number of challenges to secularism because secularism can either be benign you know, and, 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 you know, and champion the ideal of you know, being a safe place for people of all faith and none, but there are ways of being secular that can be a little bit more militant and a little bit more punitive towards people of faith. Uh, let me give a couple of examples. I think there are some, there are some challenges from a more militant secularism. Uh, some weeks ago, in the ACT, the ACT territorial government rushed through laws so they could seize Calvary Hospital. Calvary Hospital is a Catholic hospital that was founded in the 1970s. Uh, the Little Sisters of, I think they're called the Little uh, Sisters of Mercy, were invited to create this hospital at the invitation of the ACT government. Uh, some months earlier, the ACT government noted that this, this hospital was problematic because they refused to provide a full range of services related to reproductive health and engage in end-of-life care including euthanasia. Not long after that, they rushed through legislation to uh, seize the hospital and bring it under direct government control. And I remember seeing uh, very quite vividly, uh, on a Sunday, they sent out a construction crew. One of the first things they did was remove the cross from Calvary Hospital. I think doing that on a Sunday was quite deliberate. It was meant to be quite symbolic. And it was reminiscent of similar things I've seen in places like the Soviet Union and China. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that that was a punitive action. Uh, it was the attempt to uh, take measures against a Catholic hospital because it would not commit themselves to certain services that the ACT government believed were important. Uh, we could give a whole bunch of other examples of similar things. I would say in Australia we don't experience religious persecution. Let me, let me be very clear. I, I, I read magazines like Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, I have a 
working knowledge of different places around the world where there is real persecution of Christians. What we face in Australia is, and this has been officially documented in the Pew Research Survey, we do have high rates of social hostility towards religion, not government persecution of religion, but high rates of social hostility towards religion. Australia does have unhealthy amounts of Islamophobia. We do have some unhealthy amounts of anti-Semitism. I remember some years ago, uh, Green Senate leader Adam Band uh, tweeted out uh, an image that was an anti-Semitic trope de depicting Jews as a hooked-nosed hooked banker. Uh, it was quickly taken down, but it didn't really get reported much in the media. Uh, we also have, I believe, high rates of anti-Catholicism as well, and that is a point of concern. The third problem we have is a gap in the Australian Constitution. This is what section 116 of the Australian Constitution says. It says, the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion. And no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. Now, what you have to note there is that this only applies to the Commonwealth government. The states themselves are free to pursue their own arrangement with religious bodies in their own specific jurisdictions. Now, there have been two attempts in 1952 and in 1988 under Bob Hawke to change the Constitution so these religious freedom protections would apply not only to the Commonwealth but also to the states. Both times, for a variety of reasons, they have been defeated. Now, that itself means there is a genuine lacuna, there is a gap in our religious freedom protections. So how have the states gone about filling in their gap? What they've largely done to fill in the gap is given religious bodies exemptions to anti-discrimination legislation. Now, that itself is incredibly problematic because I would argue uh, religious freedom is far more than the right to discriminate on isolated incidents. Secondly, there's also the risk that these exemptions to anti-discrimination law can be wrongly used and deployed. They can be weaponized against different groups, uh, people based on gender, sexual orientation, or even based on their religious observance or lack thereof. And we don't have anything really else. And it's even more acute given that those exemptions to anti-discrimination law are often being rolled back and there's nothing there to really replace it with. Uh, so we do have a genuine, if you like, a gap in our religious freedom frameworks. Fourth, uh, and this is somewhat the epicenter of the current context, uh, there are some uh, very real differences between how we balance LGBTIQ rights and religious freedom. So generally, I think we would argue that a non-discrimination principle is a genuinely good thing. People have the right to live out their life without facing harassment or discrimination. But then how do faith-based schools maintain the identity of their institution uh, if they are not allowed to discriminate in their hiring practices or discern who are the best students to attend their school or their charity or whatever um, 
business they are engaged in. I mean, that, that, that's a real thing. Uh, most, uh, most school principals I've spoken to at Christian schools have told me they do not expel students for being gay. I would say that is a good thing. But on the other hand, would it be right to force a Muslim school to hire a gay atheist as their vice principal? That's probably not going to work out well in the long run. But what are the limits and where do we put them? Where do we give different institutions the ability to maintain their identity and ethos at the same time of holding a genuine non-discrimination principle as a good thing? That's what we're trying to work out in the moment and coming to some kind of equitable solution is uh, proving to be very, very difficult. A fifth problem I think we're facing is we're living in an age of post-liberal views of freedom. You know, once upon a time, it was common to say things like, you know, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend your right to say it. Um, I don't think that's generally the law of the land now. It's more of the case, I don't like what you say, and I want to see you cancelled. You know, we be, believe of freedom of speech for our tribe, whether that's conservative or progressive, we want freedom of speech for us, but we want censorship for everyone else. Uh, that's not a genuinely good principle. Uh, let, let me give you a really good example of that. Uh, I've got a number of progressive friends who are not very big fans of Israel Folau, for reasons you can imagine. If you don't know, Israel Folau was an Australian rugby player who uh, put on social media some comments about gay people going to hell. Uh, I don't think what he wrote was particularly helpful or particularly partial, but that's, that's, that's another story. But as a result of putting it um, out there, he was eventually sacked or he had to come to an arrangement with Rugby Australia. Now, a lot of my progressive friends I speak to think, now, this was good. He should have been sacked. They should have got rid of him for saying that. It was offensive. He did not have the right to say that. He should experience some degree of punishment for what he said. When that happens, I tell them the story of Brian Leach. Brian Leach worked for, it was a 50-year-old grandfather who worked for supermarket chain Asda in the United Kingdom. Uh, he was on Facebook one day and he reposted a, uh, a Billy, a Billy Colony, uh, Connolly uh, skit or rant where he was saying many expletive things about all the religions of the world. He was certainly not a fan of any of them, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Buddhist, or Hindu, and he kind of you know, reposted this anti-religious rant by Billy Colony. One of his colleagues at ASDA made a complaint about Brian Leach to the ASDA management. ASDA management confronted Brian Leach over this, and he was uh, told he had to apologise, which he duly did. And then, after he apologised, he was still sacked by ASDA. And what I, I like to ask people, if you believe that Rugby Australia can sack Israel Folau for what he said, you also have to accept that Asda was in the, within the right for sacking Brian Leach. And so I ask them, you know, which one of these do you want to affirm? And they, my friends often go along with, well, you know, I'm happy to see both sacked as long as we can get rid of Israel Folau or something like that. Which, which strikes me as kind of, you know, we've got to burn the village to save the village kind of a mentality. But like I said, uh, the idea that we need to empower employers 
to police our own social media activity and take punitive actions against people for what they say, I think sets the labour movement backwards 30 years. Why on earth would anyone who supports the working class or working people believe employers can sack you based on exercising your own political or religious um, uh, views on social media? Uh, So it's this post-liberal age that, that I think we are struggling with. So given what I've just said, given that you know, Australia does have a little bit of social hostility towards religion, given the gaps in our constitution, given the fact that defining religious freedom uh, with, or defending it with exemptions to anti-discrimination laws I don't think is wise or workable, and you know, conflicts with LGBT rights, post-liberal views of freedom, what is the solution? Well, I want to argue that The problem uh, is not secularism. Secularism is, in fact, the solution. I believe secularism is a good thing. Secularism, at its best, is about creating space for people of all faiths and none. Defined that way, secularism is a good thing. Because, I mean, not not in in the sort of circles I travel in, we often talk about uh, secularism as if it's kind of like the boogeyman. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the secularists are out, out there trying to get Christians or hurt the church. Secularism is actually one of the best tools we have for articulating, defining, and defending religious freedom. Because secularism basically says this, you know, we don't want to live in a theocracy. We don't want to uh, replace the governor general with a pope, Dalai Lama, Ayatollah or chief rabbi. Because when you do that, it always ends badly. It goes badly for the state and it also goes very badly for the Christian faith because you end up with a purely civil religion or a superficial expression of religion. So living in a theocracy does not necessarily lead to better religion. The other side of secularism, as we've seen in, in, a, in our own constitution, is that the government doesn't discriminate you based on your religion and the government doesn't tell you how to do your religion. So defined that way, secularism is actually the basis, the platform or the framework in which we can enjoy religious freedom. So what we need is a better secularity. And here's the other thing I need to let you know. There are different types of secularism. There are different secular frameworks around the world. The secularism of North Korea is different to the secularism of France, which is different to the secularism of Turkey or India or Britain or the United Kingdom. I mean, for example, consider this. Uh, In the United Kingdom, they have an established church with the Church of England. Now, it's it's not exactly it was the same under King Henry VIII. Things have evolved a little bit since then, thankfully. But the, the crown still appoints bishops in the Church of England, albeit through the advice of certain committees and the like. But at the moment, in England, you have a Christian king, you have a Hindu prime minister, a Buddhist home secretary, an atheist opposition leader, and a Muslim mayor of London and Muslim first minister of Scotland. So even with a Christian heritage and officially established religion, you have a secular, pluralistic, and participationist framework, which I would argue is actually a good thing. 
because people of all faith and none can participate in the political process. Everyone is enfranchised. There's toleration and we all contribute to pursuing human flourishing and better goods for our society. So secularism can be pluralistic and it can lead to good outcomes. It doesn't preclude the fact that church and state cannot work together. Uh, it's not like the, um, the poles of a magnet. You can have church and state bodies working together, but whether that's in education, like I said, chaplains in the military or different realms, but there's that genuine principle that there are some areas where religion is not allowed to matter, and in religion, it is not to be subject to state, um, state interference. What Australia really needs, uh, however, is a positive account, a positive bill about religious freedom. You could say what we really need is an anti-religious discrimination bill, but I think we need perhaps something along a bill of rights at a federal level which ensures religious freedom. What we need, I would argue, is something along the lines of Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Now, this is not a document you have probably heard of. Uh, you may not be able to read it because of the fine um, writing. I'll, I'll read it to you. This, this is what it says, okay? Everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right shall include freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice and freedom either in individually or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. No one shall be subject to coercion which would impair his freedom to have or adopt a religion or belief of his choice. Freedom to manifest one's religions or beliefs may not be subject, or may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary to protect public safety, order, health, or morals or the fundamental rights and freedoms of others. And the states, parties to the present covenant shall undertake to have respect for the liberty of parents and when applicable legal guardians to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. Um, Article 18 of the ICCPR is a very thick, wholesome and robust definition of religious freedom. Uh, this is one we should be articulating and defending. Uh, I have to point out the Australian Law Reform Commission recently produced a document attempting to thread the needle and strike a balance uh, in faith-based schools, how they maintain their identity and how they obey to adhere to a non-discrimination principle for LGBTI people. Sadly, that report is largely the attempt to get around the ICCPR because whenever they mention the ICCPR, Article 18, they normally say, but, or however, or like, well, yeah, technically uh, the ICCPR says you've got religious freedom in community with others, but, or yes, technically the ICCPR says uh, parents are entitled to the religious and moral education of their children, but... Uh, which is why I think the Australian Law Reform Commission's report is incredibly problematic and for a bunch of other reasons I could go into. But you should be familiar with documents like these. These are the things you should be qu quoting 
uh, when you write to politicians or civic leaders when it comes to what is an expression of religious freedom that we want to champion, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is one of those such things. Uh, third, uh, what we also need, I believe, is a genuine ethos of what the uh, American legal philosopher John Inazu calls confident pluralism. Okay? The objective of religious freedom is not for religion to be hegemonic okay? or for us to be privileged or in charge. So if you say, look, I want Australia to be a Christian nation, uh, the issue is, well, fine. Which denomination do you want to put in charge? Uh, should we put the Anglicans in charge and we'll force our Baptist friends to baptize their babies? Only worship according to the Book of Common Prayer? No, they'll teach them a lesson. Um, no, no, I mean, that's the problem if you say, I want Christianity to be hegemonic or to be in charge. Well, which version of Christianity gets to be in charge? And you've got the same problems about toleration and religious diversity. Uh, what we need is a way of managing differences within diversity. So there are rights and protections for everyone. Confident pluralism is really quite simple. People have the right to be different, to think different, to live different, without fear of reprisal, whether they are gay, God-fearing, or both. Confident pluralism allows genuine differences to coexist without suppressing or minimizing our firmly held convictions. We can embrace pluralism precisely because we are confident in our own beliefs and in the groups and institutions that sustain them. As uh, former Liberal MP Tim Wilson said, a free society does not seek to homogenize belief or conscience, but instead affirms diversity and advocates for tolerance and mutual respect. We need a balance of rights to manage these differences within diversity, which means people have the right to hold unpopular opinions. People have the right to be different without fear of punitive actions from government. People have the right to regard the state as not the, the ultimate power. People have the right to seek their own happiness to the extent it does not infringe upon the rights of others. And this applies for Anglicans, Buddhists, Baptists, Muslims, people who are gay, bi, trans, uh, or even, dare I say, Collingwood supporters. <laughs> you can tell I've taken this from a speech I delivered in Victoria. Maybe I should have said the um, dolphins these days. Dolphins. Actually, I like the dolphins. Okay. Uh, let me finish up leading, uh, reading to you a letter that the American president, George Washington, wrote to a Jewish congregation in Rhode Island. Uh, many Jews had fled Europe, coming to the American colonies, hoping they would not be persecuted by the governing authorities. I mean, many Jews found that they were better treated in the Muslim Ottoman Empire than they were in places like Catholic Spain or even Anglican England. Uh, when they wrote to George Washington uh, about his opinion to the Jewish people and whether he'd be leaving them a bee, uh, this is what he wrote back to them. He said, It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character not to avow that I am pleased with your favourable opinion of my administration and fervent wishes for my felicity. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. 
while everyone shall sit in the safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make them afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our own several vocations useful here, and his own due time and way everlastingly happy. Uh, those words that everyone would sit under their own vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid, that's drawn from Micah 4.4. And that, I believe, is what we should aspire to. We need to have a species of secularism that becomes a framework to create a safe place for people of all faith and none. We need a religious freedom that is balanced healthily with other rights, including freedom of conscience, freedom of association. And we need to aspire for Australia to be a place where we may all sit under our own vine and fig tree and none shall make us afraid. And on that note, I think I will end. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.